You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Cyber CEOs Decoded, where we speak with CEOs from established security giants to up-and-coming disruptors, getting the inside track on what makes a security company tick. I'm your host, Mark Fanzadoroff, the CEO of Devo, and today my guest is Peter McKay, a security veteran and the current CEO of Sneak. Peter, welcome to the show. Hey, Mark. Glad to be here. I'm uh, super excited to have you on the show, Peter. Uh, You and I, like a number of my guests, I guess it's inevitable after a couple decades in the cybersecurity space, we've had some overlap, a lot of mutual acquaintances. And I was really looking forward to uh, to digging more into into your career and into your background. And uh, I also want to thank you because you've also offered me uh, lots of uh, good advice as I've uh, been on my journey here as a CEO. Oh, it's great to be here. And uh, yeah, you know, if you're in software long enough, you you almost think you've met everybody. But uh, software has been a, a fantastic place to be for the 30 years I've been in it. And it's it's been fun and you meet a tremendous amount of great people. I agree. Maybe uh, 150 years ago, we would have been coal miners, but today we're in the software space. And I think uh, that's that's a lucky situation. Um, so Peter, I want to go into your background a little bit, and then we're going to get into your career and then talk about uh, what you're doing today at Sneak and then try and share some of that advice that you've privately shared with me. We'll get that out for for other people to learn from as well. Um, sure. Let's start with the basics here. Uh, you and I are both uh, in the Boston area today, uh, but where are you from originally? Where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in a, a town kind of in between uh, Boston and Providence called North Attleboro. I went to high school at Bishop Fian. Um, and so kind of a smaller town, kind of away from the cities and uh, Great place to grow up and, and have fun. And you, uh, I think I uh, heard that you're the youngest of six kids. Is that true? I'm the fifth of six. So uh, we had five kids in six years. So I was the youngest. And my brother, my younger brother, Matthew, was five years younger than I am. So, uh, so for the most part, I was the youngest for at least five years or so. That's awesome. And uh, what was growing up like for you? Was that uh, a close family? What was it like? So my mother was Italian, so a very, very close-knit family. And to till this day, we're all within like 10 miles of each other. So uh, very close-knit. I mean, when you get that big of a family that close together, you know, the kids take care of the kids and you kind of grow up together as a group. And uh, we're still that way today. So it's, it's uh, great to be part of that kind of family. And now it's, I think there's 18 nieces and nephews. So it's gotten a lot bigger now today. Wow, so, wow, wow. Yeah. And um, anything like that you, in your career today, look back to that early upbringing and say, you know, that's kind of a key value I got from that time? Um, you know, I think a lot of it is the um, your first is just, uh, you know, the family kind of mindset and how, uh, you know, we better together as a group. I think we helped each other kind of grow up and then help each other through challenging times with each other or or kids and, and as we grow up. And I take a lot of that to companies um, as well in running them. I think that would be number one. The, the second is, you know, just interpersonal, you know, experiences, you know, being able to be just a normal person growing up in a normal environment and, a, and, and being able to kind of uh, kind of help people understand people, know how to talk to people and relate to people. I think that has a lot to do with not you know, growing up with a close-knit family, but not a lot of money and kind of having to make your own money and, and grow up. And I think that taught me a lot about, you know, how to relate to people as I got older in my career. 
Yeah. Are you one of these people from large families on the younger side of the kids that has to eat your food very quickly because you're worried your brothers or sisters will steal it from you? There is no question. And I still do that today, unfortunately. I clean plates and I don't share well. Uh, those are the things that I do. <laughs> you got to eat fast because it's, uh, that's all you're going to get. And you got to get it before your sisters get it. That's awesome. First meaningful, meaningful paid job. What did you, uh, how'd you earn your, your big bucks as a kid? I took care of lawns. You know, I started with two or three in the neighborhood and then I did a, I did a pretty good job at that. And other people started asking me to do lawns. And I think I got up to about 15 different lawns I used to do and take care of. So it was actually a really good business. And I ended up bringing in some of uh, some of my friends in to help when it came time for leaves that we had to pick up. So hard work, but I love it. You know, I love, till this day, I love landscaping and working around the yard. And uh, I take a lot of pride in, in doing it and, you know, making sure my lawn and other people's lawns were, were the best in the neighborhood. So uh, that's that was kind of my thing growing up. Wow, that, that sounds more like your first CEO job versus, uh, yeah. uh, I mean, you're like- Started early. <laughs> yeah, started early. Did you IPO that one or you, you? No, no. Unfortunately, I did it through high school. And, uh, you know, at some point I had to slow it down and I had to tell people I couldn't do it anymore. And, you know, I passed it to my brother and you know, he didn't do as nice of a job as I did. So he started losing that franchise. So my succession planning wasn't all that uh, what it needed to be in that lawn care business. Wow. Sounds like he had a, a net retention problem on your, on your business that you handed to him. And, uh, and you end up going to Northeastern for your for your, your university. Yeah, great experience. I love Northeastern. I went to Northeastern. My brother went to Northeastern. My father went to Northeastern. My wife went to Northeastern. My kid went to Northeastern. My nieces, nephews go to Northeastern. So a lot of history in Northeastern. I taught a little at Northeastern. So um, I think it's a great program, probably one of the best in, in Boston. Um, and I have a son that goes to Boston College. No offense to Boston College, but... Uh, Northeastern with the co-op program and getting out with two years of experience. I mean, I can't hire enough Boston uh, and Northeastern University graduates. They're just an amazing school with amazing talent. So if, if somebody were to look you up on LinkedIn, they might think your first job was that you were the S, an SVP at Computer Associates. But is that really how you started your career at Northeastern? Take us to your first job out of Northeastern and how you got to, to the software space. Yeah, it, it wasn't a straight line, that's for sure. So I, I did my co-op jobs as an auditor. So I took accounting and finance. I graduated in accounting and finance. Um, the jobs that were paying were accounting jobs. So I, I did the internal audit, then became a, an accountant in companies, and then I became a controller. And then, you know, I, that's how I started. You know, it's a great way to learn and understand the business, understand numbers and uh you know, both the audit and the controllership were two amazing ways to begin a career. But I also knew that's not what I wanted to do long term. And I found my way to, you know, when I saw how big the commission checks were for uh, salespeople that I was uh, that we had in the in the company, I said, I could go do I could do that job. So I made a career change, it took me a year to get into computer associates. And that's that's how I started. I started as a sales rep. So I went from making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year down to thirty thousand dollars a year. And, and off, you know, majority commission, and um, and it was, you never looked back from there. Wow. And, uh, I mean, that might have been at the same time you were buying your first house, settling down, and the like. So, you, you're, you're, both those things are happening at the same time. Salaries dropping, responsibilities increasing. Yeah, it's uh, it was a funny story because I was, uh, yes, that is the case. I wanted to make the career change, but, 
And I was building, I had this quest that I want to build my house. And I started building and having my house built. And when I realized I was going and making a career change, I stopped the house so they didn't finish the second floor. So I had a house I lived in my living room for, uh, you know, a couple of years until I I knew I had enough, made enough money to finish my second floor of the house. So you, you do what you do when you think it's the right move for you to make. And I was okay living in my living room for uh, for a couple of years until I could had enough money to, to do the second floor. Wow. So you spent nine years working your way up there and did become a senior vice president at, at Computer Associates. It was a great run. Um, you know, it was pretty much through the 90s. Um, you know, CA was growing a lot. I mean, it had an interesting culture, some good and a lot of not so good. So I learned from, you know, a lot of that experience. But every year I was doing something different. So it was almost like a bunch of, you know, jobs in that one job. But that really got me acclimated to software and, you know, how how to run it and, you know, different cultures. And so I learned a lot and I knew I could parlay that into other moves as I as I worked my way and I moved a lot, uh, moved about four times through that journey and then ultimately wanted to get back to Boston. And that's where I kind of I left C- uh, CA and went over to PTC and, and started that journey. It was kind of a, you know, I wanted to go to a startup. Like I wanted to go and run my own software company. And, and at the time, PTC bought this company, Windchill. And they said, uh, you know, come here. It's a startup within a well-funded company. And so I said, well, okay, not as risky as going off and doing my, my own. And it was clear that ultimately what I wanted was to do my own. So it was kind of not as much of a startup that I was looking for. And then ultimately I went to um, a company called eCredit, which was, uh, which was right at the, the dot-com and you know, all about credit decisioning, automated credit decisioning. And it was like the right place, right time, took off. And this company, Internet Capital Group, came in and kind of really, you know, bought majority of that company out. And so did it for a little while, stayed there for a little while, then left and then took some time off. 9-11 happened. Um, and then I ultimately went into a company called Watchfire, which was application security. That's kind of how I started in the security space. Great company, great culture, great team really good opportunity. I'm friends with all these people today. Uh, that was acquired by IBM. So you and I missed each other just by a, a little, a few months, both coming in around the same time. And, uh, you know, stayed there for my, you know, one year and a day uh, experience was enough for me. And then uh, went to a company, uh, took a little time and then went to a company called Destone. By the way, I heard from a mutual friend that your one year at IBM um, I heard a couple of interesting stories about your one year at IBM, but the one that I thought was interesting and very complimentary was that on your last day, this mutual friend was uh, making sure that you turn in your computer and, and your badge and everything. And he mentioned that you were to the last minute still on sales calls, pushing this, the, the watch fire now part of then part of IBM sales team to close deals, add more services revenue onto the proposal. You, know, you were in it until the last into the last minute. I mean, it was a good fit for Watchfire, and it was good for the team. Um, and IBM did a really good job of taking care of the people that came into from Watchfire. And, you know, it was just as much of loyalty to IBM as it was, you know, obviously loyalty to the team that, that was with Watchfire for many years. So I don't think you would do it any different. I don't think anybody would do it. I mean, I hope. You want to leave with a good impression. Like the people at IBM said that was... That was a good company, a good leadership team, and they did it right. That was important. That was important to me. 
as you said, I inherited that team as we were building IBM Security, and and eventually that became IBM Security AppScan was the name of the product that uh, Watchfire uh, brought over, and and. I can tell you it was uh, many, many multiples in revenue of where it was when you sold the company. So I think it was a good deal for everybody. It was. In the back of my mind, though, I knew that I kind of felt it. we could have gone longer in Watchfire. I think people needed that. And so it was the right thing for Watchfire. But what I wanted next was to come in at a company that was where Watchfire is when IBM bought. So that was still sticking in my mind, like a little unfinished business for me, career-wise. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, Sneak is a continuation of, of the solving that problem, uh, actually, right? We'll go pace quickly. You you became CEO of Desktone, and uh, I think with a couple of, of your Watchfire colleagues, but I'm sure a bunch of new ones, and ended up selling that company to VMware. Yeah, I moved into VMware. I said I, I started in the, the mailroom at VMware. You know, it was kind of like this group within end-user computing. So it was kind of like, you know, end-user computing was a little bit of the black sheep of uh, VMware because they had vSphere and they had, you know, uh, NSX and all these different. And then there's this end-user computing and then there's this desktop within end-user computing. So, you know, I had to kind of build a whole brand of desktop, but also myself within VMware and, and work my way up through that organization to become the general manager of the Americas business. So, you know, I don't know, Deston was, you know, under 50 million. And next thing I'm running a $5 billion business for VMware in like two years. So it was a great experience. I had a ton of fun. Wasn't ultimately what I wanted to do long-term. And, and VMware was very Palo Alto-centric. So I knew that I didn't want to go to Palo Alto. I didn't want, so I knew it was at some point I wanted to go do something. And that's when I stepped into uh, uh, to Veeam. That was kind of a mid-stage company in the back of a recovery. So really stepped into uh, a company that was kind of ripe for acceleration. And I think we started in the, you know, sub $400 million range. I think we ended at about just under a billion. So good three-year journey, learned a lot. A lot of the team, you know, it was kind of a mixture of kind of the Watchfire, Deathstone kind of team, VMware team, kind of a lot of people we knew we didn't all coming together to make that experience. And that was, uh, learned a ton, I look back as a, a great learning experience. It was a publicly listed company, no. or no, it wasn't. Okay, got it. Yeah. Private by uh, you know the two founders who've been part of that journey since the beginning. Three years was enough for me, and so I needed a break. And I was running really straight from Watchfire to IBM to Deston to VMware to Veeam. I was pretty beat. I was pretty exhausted. I ended up doing an Ironman in, in between. Kind of, I said I had I need to get a distraction from. Uh, from getting another job. So I ended up, you know, signing up for Lake Placid Ironman. I did that one. And then I, then my wife said, you know, you, that's the last time you're going to do that. And so um, that's when I started having conversations with the founder of, of Sneak. And, you know, he was my CTO at Watchfire. And we were always friends from that point on. And he said, come on, you got to come in. You got to come in. You got to come in. I said, I am not coming in. I am not doing that. Go find someone else. And then, you know, I, that whole Watchfire to IBM kind of, it's where I had the most fun. You know, if I think about when did I have the best time in my career, it was Watchfire. And I said, let's go do that again. So before we go to Sneak, um, again, another mutual friend said that you once said that early in your trajectory that you, you felt that big companies spend time blaming people when there's a problem and small companies get into a conference room, order pizza and figure out how to solve it. 
And and that was maybe uh, early in your journey that you you made that statement. But then since then you were at VMware, and Veeam is not a small company, as you said. That's it's bigger than you know what a Watchfire or Deathstone would have been. Looking back to all those experiences, small company, big company, do you still think that that's the case? Uh, big companies blame and small companies solve. I don't know if it's the blame per se, as it is. There's a lot of people who can say no, and not as many people who can say yes. It's risky to say yes. And I think the reason I went, I moved so fast at VMware was I wasn't worried about losing my job. Like I said yes to things. I took chances. I took risks. And they needed to change. And I was this, this change agent inside of a big company that not a lot of people do. And it wasn't because I was so good at what I did. I was just someone who was willing to take chances and make tough decisions when not a lot of people were doing it at the time. It needed to disrupt. It was a single product, it needed to be a multi-product. It needed to change its approach. And, you know, I was like this glass of water to someone coming through a desert with like, no, go ahead. You can do this. Try it. Let's see what we can do. I think it can happen, but it's, the, it's a really a mindset shift that has to happen in the big companies that allows people. It gives them permission to make mistakes and not, not worry about their jobs if they do. But I think I think maybe part of that is is having had the experiences outside and knowing there are other options out there for you if should you fail, right? And I think that's what I I noticed when I was at the big company myself was a lot of people had grown up there and they are quite conservative because that's their world. Whereas if you've had some other experiences and then go to the big company, you may take those risks that end up being that entrepreneur that they need because you kind of have a perspective. Yeah, it's not for everybody, right? I mean, the whole you know, startup, small company, you got to be a little bit more of a risk taker and you got to be okay with not everything is kind of buttoned down and you got to be able to be scrappy and and creative and curious that maybe is different than a bigger company. Awesome. Okay, cool. So Sneak, tell us about Sneak and how you met the founder, they wanted you to come over, but it wasn't the same team that founded Watchfire, I don't think, or was it? No, no. It was not. It was, uh, I mean, people from the, the founder of Sneak was the CTO at Watchfire. I was one of the first investors in, in Sneak. I became the first advisor. Then I became the first board member. So I've been on the journey all along. I knew Guy really well and in the team over the years. And, and they did well. And it was just kind of scaling. And it was, okay, how do I do this? And he said, can you come in for a day a month? And then it became a day a week. And next thing you know, I'm like, signing up to run the thing. And I'm like, how did I get here? This is not what I thought I was going to be, but it's been great. I mean, we've been a very collaborative partnership and it's not easy coming in as CEO when the previous CEO was the founder. I've done it many times. Um, You can't have these huge egos that it's all about one or the other. It's about all of us, what's right for the company. And if it means I got to take a little bit of a backseat so that person can get more limelight and visibility, that's okay. It's whatever's right for the company. And that's what we did. Uh, that's amazing. On a product level, and I can, by the way, relate to that in this role here as well. Some amazing founders here, and we've shared the the limelight and figured out how to navigate that. At a product level, Watchfire, Verico, and a lot of players were preceding Sneak. What what do you, what is, you guys are growing like crazy rates, tons of money, huge valuation, 8.6 billion, I think was your last valuation, according to the press, 1,300 employees. So just all the stats are amazing. But it comes down to the product, right? What does that product do that the other guys before you weren't doing? Yeah, I think this is the genius of the founders is that they recognize that there's a fundamental shift in the way application security needs to be done. These were all tools. The tools you mentioned were 
tools for security people, right? They were built security tools for security people. The users were security people, which is this small group of people at the very end of the process that would review an application, find all the problems, and throw it back to developers. And the view from the beginning was that's way too late, and, and that's not scalable with the pace of application development today and the number of developers versus security people were getting way out of whack. So you had to flip it upside down. What if we shifted security to be built into the developer process? And so as the developers are building the apps, you're testing to make sure they're secure. So think like a Word document. You type in a Word document, spell check, grammar check. It highlights the problem and how to fix it and built into the the application. And that's what we've done. We've done that through open source security, container security, infrastructures, code, cloud security, all built into the software development lifecycle. So it's like, why would you wait till the end of the process when you're about to go into production or in production to find a security issue? Why wouldn't you find it at point of creation? And so it was this complete different view of how this market is being done. And we're dramatically changing how application security is done. And that's why we've been as successful as we've been. Is it product-led? Do people try it, buy it that way? Or is it still kind of more of an enterprise sale? Because the users are developers, like our users are developers. You know, a lot of times the buyers are security, but the users are developers. You have to have this, and this is what we started in 2015 with this developer community, free content, free tools. Then we had a freemium. All of our products have a freemium version. Then once they like it, they want to use it on a paid version. And we started actually selling in 2015, 2017, and it's gone from there. It was very much a bottom-led PLG motion that nobody has ever done in security, right? I mean, it's done for tools and security to developer tools, but not for security. So that's what we done. We did. We developed this massive inbound, which is 55% of our, our leads today come in through this inbound motion. And then we have this top-down motion that goes in through security that expands and kind of builds that across the organization. So um, developers don't even have to talk to a person. I can try it. I can buy it without talking to a human. Um, and that's what we needed. That was a big part of, you know, kind of changing your go-to-market to the way your, your users wanted to, to buy. And that's what we did. That's awesome. And um, any hiccups along the way? You've been, is, has it been a straight shot since you got there? Or any, any moments where it was like a uh, gulp, uh, you know, we got some stuff to... Uh, I think, I don't know, gulps, not, you know, I'd say, yeah, a fair amount of mistakes I've made over the, over the years. Yeah, I mean, you're moving incredibly fast. You're growing 150% year over year. You make, you know, you're hiring a lot of people. I mean, you don't get them all right. You know, you don't get all your decisions right. I mean, we've made some, uh, some things that I would definitely take back, but we made a hell of a lot more right than we did wrong. And when we made a wrong decision, you know, we call each other out. Like, look at, we made a mistake. Let's move on and let's figure it out. Well, let's not make it again and make sure that we acknowledge it and move on. And that's been our culture. Like, not everything's going to be work. Not every decision was the right one, but it was based on the, the data you have at a particular point in time. And it's okay to make mistakes. Yeah. Can relate to that very much for sure. Um, so you guys hired a lot of people. So maybe just a couple topics to dive into in this journey and and, and maybe more uh, philosophically in your various journeys. Hiring. And you must have a philosophy on hiring because you've had to do so much of it and, and some of it comes through your network. But how do you navigate that piece? It's really hard. And I can't encourage people with probably the most important process you need to get right in a company 
is make sure you bring the right people in. So not only are they really experienced and they're really good at their role, but it's, it's critical that they're good culture fits into the company. So we always had this humble and smart kind of mentality, you know, no egos. I mean, confidence, yes, egos, no. Um, you know, getting really people who uh, can work as a team. And we got our core values as a company that we make sure that in every interview, there's someone focused, at least one person focused on purely culture fit. We've done a really good job. I was worried that we were going to lose this amazing culture we had as a company through COVID, you know, and that we were hiring people and new people were hiring new people and that hired new people. And I'm like, how are we going to keep this culture? And, you know, I think what happened was uh, most of the people came to sneak because of the culture and the opportunity. And so their vested interest in making sure that the, the reason they came here was the culture. So I'm part owner of making sure it stays that way or gets better. And so that was it. It's not the CEO owns, the CEO owns culture. It's everybody owns culture. You come here, you want to be in a place you can do your best work and you can have fun and you can meet some really good people, no jerks. And that's what you want. Okay, it's not just my job. It's all of our job to make sure that we have that type of person in the company and we keep our culture. And that's why it's gotten better and better as we've grown. That's awesome. Uh, the no jerks is something that's come up in many of these discussions with uh, CEOs. And But to your point on the pandemic, but there's also been this social, we're in the middle of a war, economic situation. You know, Are you doing anything different in the last six months or last two years in your leadership style and your tactical tactics around leadership, given everything happening in the world? I think this market condition is different than COVID. You know, COVID helped you know, it was in some cases, you know, it was a little bit of a pause, but for a lot of software companies, it was an accelerant, right? The shift to the cloud and, and more application development and acceleration of digital transformation. So for us and others, it was a, it was a tailwind. I think this is different. You know, it's not like COVID was like a black swan event. There's like five black swan events all going on at the same time. I always say do things to build up the trust and the loyalty in the good times that'll get you through the hard times. And we're going through a hard time. I mean, this is going to be a challenging period of time that's not going to be over anytime soon. And so it's going to require leaders and teams to be resilient and did not get, you know, don't get too high, don't get too low. Let's kind of work our way through this. You know, we're going to have to make some tough decisions. We're not going to be able to solve problems by adding people. I mean, we've got to be more creative in how we build and scale a business. And the conditions are harder than they ever were. And so it's like, I always say a sign of a good team is not when things are great. It's how you can persevere through hard times and come out better on the other end of this. And that's the challenge for leadership. I mean, it's easy being a leader in good times. It's really freaking hard to be a good leader in tough times. And it's because you, you got to say no uh, to a lot. And nobody, it's a hard job and thankless job in a lot of cases that, um, but if you have a good leadership team and a good culture, they understand and you built the trust, they know you're not doing it for anything other than what's the best interest of the company. Yeah. Oh, you mentioned Lancioni, and uh, I love the uh, five dysfunctions of a team, right? And uh, I'm sure you've read that as well. And uh, in bad times, those dysfunctions tend to bubble up if you haven't uh, taken care of it beforehand. It is a great point because I think I would say many companies are going through this, right? I always use this, you know, high tide. In good times, the water level's high. In bad times, the water level starts dropping and the rocks underneath start showing, 
and, and, it's, and it's normal. I mean, it's normal in a bad time. It's how your company handles those issues. Did they start pointing fingers? Did they start panicking? Did they start, you know, the frustrations come in? It's how they handle those rocks that now appear that they didn't have for many years before is the sign of a good team and a not so good team, you know, because they're, they're all coming. They're all there and every company has them. It's how well that team keeps together through those, you know, that period is the sign of a good team. Cool. So um, two things maybe to round us out, Peter, has been awesome to catch up. And uh, one is I think um, you guys are, by the time this announces, we'll have, uh, we'll have done the 1% pledge. So I thought, uh, I thought it would be good to kind of talk about that and, uh, and how you see that playing out at Sneak. Yeah, yeah, it's a big, it's a big uh, week next week all around the 1% pledge. And, you know, this is, I know Salesforce and other companies kind of started this a long time ago, which is really giving back to the community. And I think what we found at Sneak is when we've been doing what we call Sneak Impact for many, many years, you can be successful and, and do the right thing at the same time. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Investing in the community, giving 1% of your shares, 1% of Tibial's time, a lot of that, that there's a whole ecosystem around this 1% pledge that I and many other companies have done. And you do it now where, you know, your stock's kind of at a reasonable level. And as it goes and as you go public, that becomes a very significant amount of money that you can use to, uh, invest in your community, invest in, you know, whether it's environment, social, every kind of cause that your company believes in around the world um, is a very important part for us to make sure that that's part of our culture as we grow. And so very proud of it. The team is very proud of what we've been able to do. And and we're still in the early, early innings of what we want to get accomplished there with our 1% pledge, but you'll hear a lot more coming up in the next few weeks. Awesome. Okay, Peter. So final question, where are we going to see Sneak and yourself in the next five years? We've got 2,500 customers today. We should have, you know, if you look at like a Twilio or Atlassian, they have 200 plus thousand customers. So we're very early innings of this developer security uh, motion. That's what we consider our category to be. And so uh, we've always viewed at some point we'd be a public company. That's been kind of how we've been running as an organization. And we feel as though we've done, we've got an amazing team, amazing board of directors, amazing people all around the world. Um, so we think there's a lot more we need to do in this developer security space. And, uh, you know, there's 34 million developers around the world. Uh, we want to get as many of them as we can, as fast as we can. And that's our quest. Uh, if we were able to, either free or paid, enabled all 34 million developers to use Sneak, the digital world would be a much safer place. And that's been our passion at Sneak from day one. Awesome. Well, Devo is a happy customer of Sneak. And so we appreciate what you guys do. The spell checker of application security is at work here at Devo and, and helping us a lot. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for joining us on Cyber CEOs Decoded. Thank you very much, Mark, for having me. And thanks to our audience for listening today. Be sure to join us for the next episode of Cyber CEOs Decoded. Mm-hmm.